Our scripture reading today is John 16, 4 through 15, page 902. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The word of the Lord. Well, let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this worship time and thank you for the opportunity to reflect on these last words that you were sharing with your disciples. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to see how they relate to us and the life that you've called us to live, even as we anticipate the work that you're doing and you will do within us and in this church. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. My name's Bob Burns. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And uh, as I was reading this passage, I was struck by the repetition that we have been catching. We've been in a series in John chapters 13 through 16. And uh, this idea of repetition has come back to my mind again and again. Uh, I read this week where Robert Bruner, who is a dean emeritus of the Darden School of Business at University of Virginia, wrote a paper, and the paper was entitled, Repetition is the First Principle of All Learning. And uh, as, I, as I thought about that, I also learned this week that a, a, a phrase that's used, in particular, particularly in the English school world, uh, is, is simply this, what's repeated gets remembered, and what's remembered gets repeated. What's repeated gets remembered, and what's remembered gets repeated. If, if Darden and this statement from our friends over in Great Britain is true, then Jesus was the master teacher. Because as we read this passage, we begin to see that there are themes that have been coming throughout all these chapters, starting in verse chapter 13 and going through 16. As a matter of fact, this week I read through and I just said, how many themes do I see Jesus saying over and over again? And I identified at least eight of them. And four of them are woven into this passage. And I'll be pointing them out as we go along here. But as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to see Jesus using this method of repetition. And he's going to drive home three points to his disciples. The first point is this. He must go to the Father for the Holy Spirit to come to them. He must go to the Father for the Holy Spirit to come to them. The second thing is that the work of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit works in relationship 
to this world and all those who are in this world. And the third thing we're going to see is the work of the Holy Spirit and how the Spirit works in relation particularly to people who are followers of Christ, disciples of Christ. So let's take a look at this. The first thing we're going to see is Jesus stressing to the disciples the advantage of him leaving. He says in verses 4 through B that if I leave you, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. He has, in the context here, he repeats this particular theme that he has said numbers of times already. He said it in chapters six times already before this chapter, that I am going to suffer. I am going to die. I'm going to rise again, and I'm going to return to him who sent me. Interestingly enough, not only in these chapters in John, but in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this is repeated again and again. In Luke three times, I mean, excuse me, in Mark three times, Jesus said to them, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected by the elders, by the chief priests and the scribes. I'm going to be killed, and three days again, I am going to rise. We see Jesus pounding this theme home again and again and again. Guys, I'm leaving you. And I'm leaving you in order that the Spirit of God might come and be with you. My task is completed, but your task has only begun. And you're going to need support and help as you go into this. And that's exactly what I'm going to do by giving you the Spirit. Interestingly enough, that's one theme. A second theme that's found in these verses 4 through, through 7 is this. The disciples just don't get it. They just can't wrap their heads around this idea of Jesus leaving them. Jesus says uh, in verse 6, Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. You see, what Jesus is doing is he recognizes that the dis disciples can't understand this. They can't wrap their heads around it. And he's naming their anxiety. As a matter of fact, nowhere else in the Gospel of John is this word sorrow used, but it's used four times in this chapter as he names what they're going through, what they're facing. You see, the disciples were totally caught up in their own anxiety. What Jesus was saying cut across all their hopes and all their expectations. And what happens when anxiety comes and overwhelms you? The same thing that was happening to disciples. They can't hear what they don't want to hear. And they can't believe what they don't want to believe. So Jesus says to them, I've said this to you, but they don't understand that he said it to them. That's a key theme that's repeated again and again. A third theme that's repeated in these few verses, is that Jesus responds to their anxiety with comfort. He has said it before. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He said to them, you will not be alone. I will not leave you as orphans. And so in verse 7 in our passage, he says, I'm going to send the helper to you, but he won't be sent to you until I go away. This is to be comforting to them. That Jesus understands the anxiety and the of the disciples and the reasons why they can't wrap their heads around what he's saying to them. 
and he gives comfort to them. I want you to grasp this for a few moments. I want you to think about this. That Jesus is facing the cross. He's saying to them, I'm going to be taken. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be scourged. I'm going to be placed on the cross and I'm going to die. Jesus is the one facing this. And the disciples are so caught up in their own anxiety and disappointment that they can't wrap their heads around it. And yet as Jesus says this, he is a calm presence in the midst of their anxiety. He's gently reassuring them, telling them that he's going to send the Holy Spirit and that that's going to be to his advantage. Now, can we just take a moment and think about this? If you were facing what Jesus is facing, would you be in a place in a condition to comfort others? Can I suggest to you that this is an example of Jesus' deity in action? That Jesus is calm, facing what he's facing, calm, facing the anxiety of his disciples who just don't get it, and taking the time to care for them. I'd suggest for you this is worthy of worship. This shows us the one that we worship, his capacity to act like that, and his ability to do that for us as well. I think a second thing we need to grab from this is the fact that anxiety can neutralize us. Anxiety can distort our perspective. Anxiety can cause us to fail to see that God is at work. And anxiety can keep us from seeing God's plan in the midst of struggle. Think about it. Think of the pressures that you may be feeling and experiencing this week. You turn on the news. You hear about war in Ukraine, and you hear the, the commentators saying, if we don't stop them in the Ukraine, they're going to go into the NATO countries, and we're going to get involved in it. What does that do to you? You hear about the war in Palestine with the Palestinians and the Israelis. And you hear about the fact that other countries are watching and seeing what's happening and what could take place in that area of the world and how it could impact us. How does that, what does that do inside of you? Well, you hear about the immigration problems that we're having in our country today and the implications of what that might mean for us. Or you listen about the, the upcoming elect, the, uh, election cycle, and it creates all kinds of feelings and emotions within you. Or maybe it's health issues, or problems at work, or problems in the family. It could be all these kinds of anxieties that come in and neutralize us and keep us from understanding and believing that God is at work in the world, and he is working his purposes out. You see, God draws us into experiences that we don't ask for and we can't understand. But he says in this passage, I will, will not leave you. I will not forsake you. And he gives believers his word and his Holy Spirit and his sacraments. And he gives us each other, just like community groups that we were just listening about, to strengthen us 
and to guide us and to direct us in the midst of the anxieties that we feel. And he is there for us. Can I suggest to you that this should cause us to praise him and give thanks to him and also to call upon him to send his spirit and to deal with us in the midst of our anxieties? I don't know what you're going through or feeling. But Jesus says to his disciples, if I don't go to the Father, I, the Spirit won't come to you. And you desperately need the Spirit of God to support you and strengthen you for what the days are ahead. And we need the Spirit of God to strengthen us and to support us, to see things from God's point of view. And to understand things as he would want us to understand it. That things are not out of control. And he is at work, working his purposes out. And giving us his spirit to calm our anxieties. And to trust him. That's the first thing that we see in this passage. Drawing on those repeated themes and bringing them back to the disciples again. There's a second point that we see here. Jesus is pointing out here the Spirit, the Holy Spirit's work in the world. Now, interestingly enough, this is the only place in the Scriptures that talks about how the Holy Spirit is working in the broader world. All the other references to the Spirit talk about what the Holy Spirit is doing for His church and for us. But here Jesus expands and says, what is the Spirit of God doing in the context of the broader world. He says this in verses 8 through 11. In referring to that, he brings back again themes that he has been referencing in all the chapters before this. For example, this is a, a key place in, in, this, in, chapter, um, in this chapter as he's making a difference between the world and believers. We saw this last week in the passage that, that Chris preached from where he said, the, the world is going to treat me, Jesus, in this particular way. They're going to they take me and, and sacrifice me and put me on the cross. He said, they're doing this because they do not know the Father nor me. You see the distinction? They don't know the Father nor me. Earlier in chapters 14 and 15, Jesus talks about the, the difference between the world and his followers. And what he's saying to them, what he's saying to the disciples is, watch, the world is blind. The world will not see unless the Holy Spirit does the convicting or the convincing. And, and what does he say that the Spirit needs to convince or convict the, the world of? He says, the world needs to be convicted of sin. And the Holy Spirit is the one who will reveal to persons the reality of sin in the broader world, but also in their own life. You see, we human beings, as we are naturally, we are blind to our sin. We make excuses or, the, or, or, or make up reasons for the things that we do. We blame other people. We show everybody else's faults. Before we come to Christ, we can't understand our sins. And after we've come to Christ, when we begin 
talking to people about Christ, we are unable to convince them of their sins. They'll push back on us and tell us how we're wrong. Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit is needed to convince the world and us of sin. There was a famous preacher back in the end of the 19th century, early 20th century. None of you in this room, well, a handful of you have heard of him, but his name was R.A. Torrey. But he, was, he, he had a, a significant ministry. And, and for a period of time, he was the pastor of a large church in Chicago called the Moody Bible Church. And, and, he, and as the pastor there, there was an individual that came to worship in the church that was a notorious gambler in Chicago. And, and one Sunday after church, Tory went up to him and was talking to him, and, and, and the man said, you know something? I don't like coming to church. I hate coming to church. Because when I come to church, I feel terrible. And Tory said, you know what? That's the Holy Spirit. It's not my preaching, he says. The Holy Spirit is convicting you because the Holy Spirit is the one who makes you feel bad and understand sin. And you say to yourself, what do I need to do to talk to my sister about Jesus? What is it going to take for my parents to come to faith? How about my neighbor? Friends, I'm going to suggest to you that the first place that you start is you go to God himself. And you say, Lord, I never would have recognized my sin if it wasn't for your spirit. I'd still be walking in darkness. Lord, you need to send your Holy Spirit to work on my friend, on my loved one, and bring them to understand sin because... As much as I might talk about, I'll never be able to get them there. And Jesus says, the Father gives the Spirit to convict the world of sin. We sang it just a few minutes ago. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And it's the Holy Spirit who does that but not only convicting us of sin. He convicts the world, it says, of righteousness. And what does it mean by righteousness? Righteousness is the holy standard by which God places his law upon creation. And when the Spirit convicts of sin, we see how far short we fall from the standard of God's holiness. And we see that there's no way we can be righteous before him. And only the work of the Spirit of God convicting of sin then will make us understand the righteousness of God and how we can actually be righteous before Him. Without the Spirit, we don't understand that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross has paid the price to literally take our sin upon Himself and to make us righteous before God, holy, clean, only the Holy Spirit can show this. I was an intern in Washington, D.C. during way back when, during the time of Watergate. 
Some of you remember Watergate. Some of you have heard about it in history classes. I was there. My future mother-in-law lived in the Watergate apartments. Okay? And there was a man working in the White House that was called the fixer for the president. His name was Chuck Colson. He was the one who did all the, solved all the problems that the president wanted to have solved. Even in trying to do the right thing, he'd do the wrong thing. And he was convicted during the Watergate process. And before he went to jail, before he went to jail, Tom Phillips, a friend, came to his house with a copy of C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. And he gave the book to Colson, and he said, I want you to read these chapters. And as, cha as, as he read those, he, he read about the righteousness of God and the resolution of that, of being able to be made righteous through the work of Jesus. And Colson became a Christian. Now, after he was convicted and after becoming a Christian, he was offered by the legal system, if you'll do these things for us, you won't need to go to jail. And you know what he said? I did what I did, and I'm going to jail for that. And I believe I have given my life to Jesus Christ, and I believe that Christ wants me to go there to be his representative. And he went to jail, and he began Bible studies, and he began growing in his faith. And after he was let out of jail, he was offered all kinds of opportunities and jobs in major organizations. And he turned them down because God had given him a vision to let prisoners learn about the forgiveness of sins and the, them being made right before God through the blood of Jesus. And he began prison fellowship instead. God not only convicts us of sins, he convicts us of righteousness. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Be made whole. Be made righteous. But not only does he convict of sin and righteousness, he convicts of judgment. Sometime look at Psalm 73. Psalm 73 reflects exactly what the coin sang in their offertory this morning. The experience of Job, you can read it in Job 20, 22. Job looks around and he says, what good is it being righteous? What good is it to follow Christ? The psalmist in Psalm 73 says, look at the unbelievers. Look at the broken world. What do they care about God? What do they care about eternal judgment? The unbeliever cares nothing about that. Ephesians chapter 2 says the reason that's the case is because unbelievers walk according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But what Jesus says in our passage is that the ruler of this world has been judged. Notice he says that to his disciples before the cross anticipating what he would do on the cross. And he says, the ruler of this world has been judged. He was judged by the work of the cross, and he was defeated by the resurrection. 
And Jesus says, when a person is pardoned, they are no longer condemned. They stand before the tribunal of the holy God, and they are no longer condemned. Because he convicts of sin, he shows us we can be righteous. And he, can, he says, you are no longer under the judgment of God. For my pardon, this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Convicting of sin and righteousness and judgment. Friends, we don't have the brain power to convince people, but the Holy Spirit can do it. There's a man who came from out of town to visit family and came to this church a few weeks ago. He had a very difficult past where he made bad decisions and he rejected the gospel. But God had been putting people into his life, wooing him back to Jesus. More than that, the Spirit of God was wooing him back to Jesus. And a few weeks ago, he wrote his family and he said, my return to God was further prodded by a sermon at CGS. He said, I was deeply moved and relieved by the message that God doesn't quit on us even when we walk away from him. He pursues us day and night with a tenacity that's scary. Now, did God do that because of the preacher at CGS? Absolutely not. That was the work of the Holy Spirit of God drawing him back to himself and showing him Sin and convicting him of sin and showing him righteousness, how he could be made right before God and showing him judgment that he no longer had to be under the judgment and the condemnation from his sin because Jesus gave him the freedom to do that. This is the work of God that he does through his spirit in the world. And he calls us to participate in that by praying that the Spirit of God would come upon our friends and our neighbors and our community and our country and show them sin and righteousness and judgment. But that's not all in this passage because there's a third point. The third thing Jesus says is that the work of the Holy Spirit is active in the life of believers in verses 12 through 15. And again, we see the repeated themes that he has been talking about of giving the Spirit the help and to support us. Three times in, the, in chapter 14, once in chapter 15, and also here in chapter 16. Jesus says in verse 13 that he will send his Spirit to believers to lead them into all truth. He's saying to the disciples, guys, you can't handle it right now. You can't grasp what's going on here why I'm having to go to the Father. But I'm telling you ahead of time that the Spirit's going to come and He's going to guide you into all truth. And so He says in verses 13, 14, and 15, the Spirit will declare it to you. He will declare it to you. He will make it known to you, the truth. Now, I ask you this question, believer. How does the Spirit declare God's truth to you? How does he do this? I'm going to suggest to you that Luke, in his first chapter of his gospel, 
explains how God has done it. It says earlier in the Gospel of John, in, in, in John chapter 14, you don't know these things now, but the Spirit is going to bring these things back to your memory. The Spirit is going to remind you of what, he is, what I have said and how I have acted and what I have done. And Luke reflects back on this and says in chapter 1, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. You hear what he's saying? He's saying the disciples walked with Jesus and Jesus said, the spirit is going to bring this back to your mind. And after Jesus rose from the dead and was with the father, guess what the spirit did? He brought these things to mind. And guess where you as believers can hear the truth and understand the truth? Right here. Because the apostles and those who walked with Jesus wrote those things down for us. And through his spirit, we have his word. And the word of God, it says, and, and Paul says to, to Timothy, his disciple, he says, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man and woman of God can be trained up and understand what they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to go. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says, Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that by the testing of that, you may discern what the will of God is. Christians, the way that God calls us to walk and understand the truth of God as it's applied to our life is by understanding the scriptures, by prayer, by allowing the word of God and his spirit to renew our minds and then to test those things, determining the will of God by experiencing life and walking in life, seeking to apply his truth in relationship with others, just like those people in the community group shared this morning. The word and prayer and relationship with others and walking in life experiencing the transforming power of God, learning his truth and how to walk in it. That's what God's called us to do as we seek to follow him. So friends, I want you to do this this week. I want you to check yourself out. You see, what, what, what Jesus is talking about here is being formed by the Spirit through the scriptures in your day-to-day -day life, being transformed. Now, just ask yourself this question this week. And I'm the chief of sinners of this, okay? But ask yourself this question. Compare the amount of time you are spending reflecting on the scriptures and praying about them in regard to your life versus the time you spend in technology and on instruments like the ones we carry in our pockets and how those are forming us. Compare. Remember what I said at the beginning of the sermon? Repetition. What's repeated gets remembered and what's remembered gets repeated. I'm asking myself, are the things that are being repeated in my mind and my life, the things which I'm drawing in from my phone 
and from my television set and from other media? What's forming my mind? Jesus has given us, through his spirit, his scriptures. And he's calling us to be reformed from within. So in conclusion, this passage gives us three things. The advantage of Jesus leaving, because he's going to send his Holy Spirit. And he's done that. The work of the Spirit of God in the world with unbelievers, convicting of sin and righteousness and judgment. And the work of the Holy Spirit in believers, guiding us through the scriptures and prayer and fellowship into all truth. This is what Jesus gives to us and calls us to, brothers and sisters. In closing, I just, I just think of a, a story that I heard this last week. It was beautiful. My wife and I lived for eight years in Stone Mountain, Georgia, outside the East in the East Atlanta area. And this story that I heard was about two women who live in the Stone Mountain and the East Atlanta area. Both of these women and their families had adopted sons through the foster care system. Both of them had adopted a son. And it turns out that their sons were in the same school, in the same classes, and through those, those, those times together, the, these two, the two mothers of these families got to know each other. Initially at a fifth grade book fair, and then as, their, as they grew, their sons grew to know each other better, they grew to know each other better. And they would talk to each other and encourage each other because adoptive parents, adoptive parents of kids in foster care know that each other, they, they know each other's situation and what they're facing. As the, as the sons grew up, they got more and more into trouble. They experimented with drugs. And after that, they, they, they graduated from high school and the two sons actually moved into an apartment together. Through all of this, the mothers in particular supported and talked to each other about what they were facing and what they were dealing with. Six weeks after they, the boys moved into that apartment, the police picked them up and charged them both with a murder. They went into the system and they began going through the processing. Now, what do you think that could have done to the, these two mothers and their relationship to have both of their sons picked up on murder charges and put into prison? It could have divided them. It turns out that one was the murderer and one was the accomplice. It'd be easier for one mother to look down upon the other mother or one mother to, to be upset that, that her son's being treated one way and the other one's being treated another way. It turns out that the one son who committed the murder was given a, a sentence of 20 years in jail. The son who was an accomplice was given a three-year sentence. Imagine how that could have divided their relationship. But instead, they committed to meet together. And every week, they meet together at Stone Mountain Park to read the scriptures and to pray for one another and to pray for their sons that the Holy Spirit would reveal sin and righteousness and judgment to their sons. Friends, this is an example of these mothers 
understanding the Spirit of God working within them, seeing that only the Spirit can open their son's eyes, but asking the Spirit to work in their lives as they supported and encouraged each other. This is the process that God's called us to, brothers and sisters. That's why we spend time putting community groups together. That's why we spend time reflecting on the scriptures together and hearing God's word and worshiping together. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, each one of us is in our own unique sets of circumstances and experiences. Thank you, Father, for those of us in the room who have experienced regeneration by your spirit, the work of you doing what you can only do. Father, there's others of us in this room who may not have experienced that yet, who may be exploring the gospel. Lord God, we pray that you would do the work, your spirit would do the work within us that we need, whether it's conviction or it's confirmation and growth. Only you are able to do this, Lord. We look to you and we pray that you would cause us to be a place where we are supported and encouraged by your word and by one another in this process. Lead us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.